I never know if there's a bumper video now with Coastal. There's always some sort of background music to walk up to. But that's okay. We'll take it. So good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Wilson. I was thinking there's another guy for you all to keep track of here at Coastal. Um, and another Wilson to keep track of. So that's exciting. Just keep it on your toes constantly. But yeah, so my name's uh, Wilson. I work at um, the Yorktown uh, campus, and I get to hang out with college students and also the young adults and also the care ministry. So it's really exciting. I love it. It's awesome. And it's so great to get to be here this morning with you all, especially on Father's Day. Um, and so what we're going to be going through is we're going to be continuing in our series that's going through Second Corinthians, our brand new word that I'm sure everybody's learned already, cruciformed. Um, and so what we'll be doing today is we're going to be diving into Second Corinthians chapter 3. That's what we're going to plant for today. And, uh, and what we're going to be talking about specifically from that is the glory of the new covenant. And so this morning we got to celebrate some fathers, which is awesome and so exciting. And uh, so for myself, this is my second lap around as Father's Day. I have a 15-month-old, Sienna. And, uh, and yeah, she is super cute because fortunately she looks like her mom. Um, and so my wife and I, we both work full-time jobs. And so one day I went to go pick up Santa from care because we have to get care for her during the workday. And, um, and so I walk in, I open the door. And it's so funny because whenever you walk into your care place, you always expect all these like security checks and people to stop you, whatever it is. But I've noticed they never ask you who your kid is because it's like as soon as you walk in, the one kid like magnetically attaches themselves and every other kid has like the stranger danger look on their face. And so... My, it was our first week dropping Santa off at care. And, you know, this is our, this is our first kid. So you're like hypersensitive to everything. And, and so I walk in and as soon as I open the door, Santa's barely saying anything at this point. She just goes, hi, Dada. And like my heart is just like, I love you. And through the roof. And so in Santa's excitement to see her dad, she forgot how her body works. And so threw herself out of her infant chair and just face first onto the ground, closely followed by her applesauce. And in that moment, I knew only a real dad could cause this much chaos and excitement at the same time. And so within that, there was no need to prove that that was my kid because the way that she reacted and no one else was on their face covering applesauce meant that that clearly must be my child. And so... Today, what we see as we open up 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that Paul is having a little bit of a, what we call a spiritual father struggle. And so what's happening here is that at this time in this church in Corinth, all of these um, people that we would call super apostles, that's what Paul calls them, are coming through and they're, they're well accredited, they, they're, they speak well, they're well funded, they're well dressed. And as they come through and they're teaching, right, they're saying, you know what, you guys were started by Paul, but Paul doesn't have any of our accreditations. He's not well-funded like we are. He's not well-spoken like we are. And so Paul starts off this chapter, chapter 3, like this. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You see, so what Paul is getting at here is that the Corinthians are saying, why should we listen to you, Paul? Because all you have are just a ton of scars and a rap sheet from your jail time. Meanwhile, I could follow this guy who just rolled up in the equivalent of a Mercedes, maybe a really nice horse and carriage, I don't know, and saying, you know, we should follow him instead. And so Paul does one of the most spiritually father things he could ever do. And he says this in verses two and three, he says, I don't need a letter of recommendation because you yourselves are the letter of recommendation. 
You're showing it. He says, you've been written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of recommendation from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Let's pray as we consider this word today. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to get to open your word. Thank you for the, the people who have come here this morning. I know that Father's Day can be difficult for some, as this might be the first day without dad. Maybe it was growing up um, without a dad, without a solid dad, Lord. And so we pray that this morning, whether they have a father here or do not, Lord, that you would be our heavenly father, that we would focus on your eternal glory and love this morning, that we would walk away knowing more about you and who you are, and that that would lift our souls to live a life that glorifies you this week. So we pray for your word to be transformational this morning and for your spirit to take hold in our lives. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. So Paul is saying, you are the letter of recommendation. You yourselves have been written on, your hearts have been written on by God himself. And so what is this saying here? It's saying this. It's saying, because you are a Christian, everything about you is emanating, is showing the truth about Jesus Christ. And so one of my old mentors used to say it this way. He used to say, you might be the only Bible someone will ever read. And what that means, what he's getting after there, is that the things that you do, the words that you speak, the reactions that you have, they're being perceived by the people around you all the time whether consciously or unconsciously, from you and your actions. And they're taking those actions, they're taking those words, and they're trying to see for themselves if Jesus is real. And so I know this sounds like a bold statement, but I can tell you, and I'm sure any pastor or person who's been in ministry can tell you, that 90% of the people who we talk to who are turned away from Jesus, who don't have a relationship with him, it's not because they have an issue with the Bible, usually because mostly they don't know the Bible enough. It's not an issue with the global church, but they've been hurt by a Christian in an ungodly way. And they say to themselves, there's no way that Jesus can be real if this person can proclaim one thing and do another. And so what Paul is getting after here is he's saying, you yourselves are written on your hearts by God. You're the letter of recommendation. Your life has been transformed by Christ. And so now the way you act is different than the way you were before. And the reason why Paul just doesn't pull rank on them and say, hey, I was here first. I did it first. I got my flag here first. That's why you should follow me. It's because Jesus runs into the same issue. And the Pharisees are challenging Jesus at this point in time on why he gets to teach with such authority and power. And they say, Jesus, you're just a carpenter from a nowhere town. How come you're teaching like this? And this is his response to them in John chapter five. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Paul is saying the same thing as Jesus. Jesus is saying people were sick and now they are well. People were hungry and now they are fed. People were hopeless and now they have hope. Does that not prove the authority of my teaching? And the same way Paul is saying, you used to rejoice in your sin. You used to celebrate your sinful lifestyle. But now you are transformed through Jesus Christ and his spirit. Does that not show that this teaching is true? It's real. You've been transformed by God himself. 
You see, that is the power of the new covenant that Paul is getting after. And before we go any further today, I want to clarify two things for us before we move any further, because there's these two words you're going to have to catch on to in order to follow the rest of the sermon today. So here's the sneak peek. All right. So your first fill in the blank is this. All right. Paul is dealing with teachers who are talking about the old covenant. They're teaching on the power of the old covenant, which is ruling of detailed written laws and sacrifices to restrain the sins of the people and a guardian to point to the coming Messiah. So they were using the old covenant to glorify themselves. Paul here is saying the reason why you are transformed, the reason why your heart is taking a change is because of, big word shift here, the new covenant. Very tricky. Stick with me. All right. Which is a gift of eternal life with God through the life, death, and resurrection of God's son, which is confirmed with the transformational indwelling of God's spirit, which is what we are talking about this morning. And so you see here, Paul is saying, you've been transformed. Your heart is now different. You desire to pursue God. And so the question of how does he do it all is found in verse 3. He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. See, Paul is exclaiming here that my Super apostle teaching didn't transform you. My ability to come in here and get here first didn't transform you. But Paul is actually jogging people's memories. He's referring them all the way back to a very, very familiar prophecy, which is found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where God is speaking to this prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is in the nation of Israel. And right now, Israel is sick with sin. They have perverted their relationship with God. And Jeremiah feels hopeless. And God is speaking hope to Jeremiah and over those who will follow him. So he says this in verse 31. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like, I'm inserting the word here, the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My old covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the same promise that God gives in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, where he says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's gonna do a lot of stuff, right? That's a lot of I wills. 19 of them actually. If I said 19 things up here for the next 30 minutes, and they were all the same 19 things, I'd probably get my point across a little bit over the top, right? 
And so this is what Paul is getting after, is he's saying, God did not sporadically invent the opportunity to get to write his law on, on your hearts. God did not just come up with this halfway through everything kind of stopped working. Paul is saying, you are this. You are the living truth to this prophecy. You are this today. That Jesus Christ has radically transformed your hearts from the inside out by writing on your souls, giving you the Holy Spirit so that your life can be transformed. And that's why he says this in these three verses. What he's getting after is that you have been transformed in order to testify. Because once you've been touched by Jesus Christ and his spirit, there is no going back. You have been transformed in order to testify. And so he goes on to say this in verses four through six. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, I know this seems like a, a tough transition, almost like he's chopping this in half, but we have to remember, Paul is writing this all as one giant long letter, all right? He's not taking a week, coming back, assigning chapters and verses. This is all one letter that he's written to this church. And so when he's talking about being sufficient for these different types of things, he's referring back to chapter two, which we got to learn about last week, where he says, for we are the aroma of Christ, of God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? See, this is a heavy calling to be the aroma of life that honestly a lot of Christians get nervous about. When we talk to Christians about, do you have confidence to share the gospel? Most of them say, not really. I'm like, you've been here for 20 years, man. What else is it going to take, right? But what he's saying here, right, is like this. Let me put it this way. When you go to a restaurant, why do you go to a restaurant? To eat, right? Yeah, good job. We all have the same answer, right? We go to a restaurant to eat, hopefully eat good food. And so when you go to a restaurant, the thing that's going to get you to come back, the thing that's going to get all the awards, that's going to get all the attention is the chef, right? You can go to a restaurant and have a great waiter and a horrible chef, you're never going to go back to that restaurant, right? But you can go to a restaurant and have an okay waiter with amazing food, and you'll drop 100 bucks, right? What Paul is saying here is you're not the chef. You're not the creator. Your job is through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. You're called to be the waiter because God has designed this amazing rescue plan for our souls. And our job is to take what God has prepared don't sneeze on it, don't drop it, don't mess it up, and literally just put it in front of people and let them consume it for themselves. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying we are sufficient because we have a perfect God. I'm sufficient because I have the Holy Spirit living within me, right? And anybody who's ever been in ministry knows that we alone are not sufficient by ourselves. Because every pastor, every Bible study leader, every children's, children's worker, everybody has run into this. You can work and work and work and prepare and prepare and prepare your message. And there's definitely something good to be said about preparing. But regardless of how much you prepare, there's two things I can never plan for. 
The first thing I can never plan for is conviction of the Holy Spirit. The second thing I can never plan for is conversion to Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say that and why every pastor or minister can relate to this is because I have gone to one place and I've preached a message and afterwards people say, man, I gotta know Jesus. I need to turn away from my sin. This is amazing. Thank you so much. So encouraging. And then the next week I get invited somewhere else, totally different crowd, totally different people group. And I bring the same message and I'm like, get ready for this. And I preach the same message and half the audience is falling asleep right? Why is that? Because I am only sufficient through what the Holy Spirit is doing. I am only able to do this because of the power of Jesus Christ. You see, a good server has confidence in his job because he has a great cook. I have confidence in my God because he is perfect and he's made the perfect rescue plan. Is that the confidence we have this morning? Are we sufficient through the Holy Spirit? And so that's why the source of our confidence and abilities is in God's spirit alone. And so Paul continues on in verse seven and he says this. He says, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So this is what Paul's doing here. He's referring back to Moses who led Israel out of slavery and into a relationship with God and was the, was the person who heralded the old covenant. He's saying this. And I think a lot of us have, have thought this before. I've been here before. Has anybody here ever read a story from the Old Testament and they've thought to themselves, man, that is Amazing. If I could see that today, oh man, I would be like the best Christian ever. I would scrapbook it. I would show all my friends about it. I'd be like, this is where God did this. And he parted the York River and then we got to walk across it. There was no traffic. It was amazing, right? And so, right, all of us have this idea where, man, if we could see just one miracle that happened in the Old Testament, I'd never doubt again. I'd be set for the rest of my life if I saw that, right? And so this is exactly what Paul is talking about in this verse here, because he's actually referring all the way back to Exodus when Moses goes up to me with God and comes down with the Ten Commandments. And so this is found in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. He says, uh, and I'm going to read verses 5 for some context. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread, drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So check this out here. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant. And this word radiant here doesn't mean like, oh, that's a nice tan. This means like his face was a light bulb. Okay, like just shooting out there for everybody to see. His face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face and he went in to speak with the Lord. You see, so Moses, after spending 40 days and 40 nights in relationship, talking to God like we would talk to each other, comes down from the mountain and his face is like a light bulb. It's just glowing on his way down. And you see, this morning, if I started preaching and my face started lighting up a little bit, you think people would perk up? Maybe just a little? Does he know what's happening to him? Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, man. If your face was lighting up, I'd hang on every word you said, right? But check this out. If you continue to read the story of Moses, the fact that these people, they saw an ocean divide. They saw Moses' face was radiant. You know how many people just a few chapters later rebelled against him? Over 30,000. Over 30,000 people, regardless of what they saw. And why was this? It's not because there was anything wrong with God's law, but it's because their hearts were not being transformed into the image of God. You see, that's the issue. Because everybody had to wait for Moses. For 40 days and 40 nights, they're kicking rocks, man. I don't know, we just walked across an ocean. Guess let's hang out. He'll come back eventually. They want to know what's going to happen next. They have to wait for Moses. They want to know what God wants for them. They have to wait for Moses. And that's why the author of Hebrews puts it this way so brilliantly in chapter one. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. You see, people had to wait for Moses. And unfortunately, Christians are still living like we have to wait for somebody else. Like we're still waiting for someone to come down from the mountain. But the truth is that God has given us his literal spirit so we can interact with him personally. And this is where I want to focus on fathers for just a moment. Because fathers, the world, your flesh, and the devil is trying to tell you that you do not need to engage as a father that you need, you need to ignore your biblical calling and just take care of yourself and provide the finances and you'll be fine. Because as soon as you turn on the TV, as you look on media, right, every father's portrayed as either some clueless dummy who has no idea what's going on in their family, or as soon as they come home, I'm getting on the recliner, feed me my dinner and I'm checking out, right? But that is not how we are called to live. We are not supposed to just sit around and wait because what's happening is that fathers are waiting for youth pastors to come down from the mountain and save their children. Fathers are waiting for pastors to come down and say something from the mountain and save their marriage. But fathers, you are supposed to go up the mountain. You are supposed to communicate with God and you are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to lead your home, your marriage, and your family the way Christ leads the church. There's no longer a need to wait, but now you can go up because you have been indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And you see, that leads me to the next point, that no one else is coming down, but now you can go up. 
you can communicate with God personally because he has touched your spirit. This is the glory of the new covenant. This is the power of the new covenant that you can interact with the God of the universe because Jesus Christ has given us his Holy Spirit. There's no need to wait. There's no need to wait. And this is why new is better. Every salesman tries to tell you new is better, right? Ah, it's more money, but new is better. Trust me, right? Until you drive off the lot and then you shouldn't have trusted them. But anyways, right? He's saying new is better. That's what we're saying here because in verses eight through 11, Paul continues like this. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You see, Paul is saying that in every single way, every single way, the new covenant has more glory. In every single way, the new covenant is better than the old covenant because it's no longer just one person leading the group. It's no longer one person saying, follow me, everybody. But now every single one of us can interact with the God of the universe. And you see, what's amazing is that the power of the new covenant is made possible through Christ, which we're going to see in Matthew 17. So as we read Matthew 17, we're going to read about the Mount of Transfiguration. As I read this, I want you all to think about what we just read about Moses on Mount Sinai, because we're going to draw a parallel between the two of them. So think about what we just read with Moses as we open up Matthew 17. It says this, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, being Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell, at their faces, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. He said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see, this is why new is better. Because we no longer have just God's law written on stone. With the new covenant, we have God's son in the flesh. That is why new is better. And what is happening here as we read is we're seeing in every way Jesus is surpassing Moses. Because in this symbolic act, Jesus is given more glory than the great prophets who the Jews saw as their rescuers. Because he's taking that glory from Moses and Elijah. His glory is proclaimed not just by his face being radiant, but by God himself. And that's why his glory is far exceeding. And finally, it says that Moses' glory stopped shining. Why? Well, because he died, right? And so Jesus 
did not die. He is alive. And so his glory is surpassing the old glory. And finally, we see that it is a permanent glory. Jesus' glory is permanent. Why? Because he ascended into heaven. Paul says, I know this glory, man. I know that this glory is permanent because on my way to Damascus, you can read in Acts 9, I saw that glory and I was blinded for three days. So you want to talk about how bright that glory is, man? I know how bright that glory is. And that's why he's saying in every way, new is better because it has more glory. It has far exceeding glory. It surpasses the old glory and it has permanent glory. And that is the power of the new covenant. And so Paul's going to wrap up like this. He says, since we have such a hope, I wonder if Christians would describe themselves in the next couple of words. We are very bold. We describe our week for Christ like this. I was very bold for Jesus. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When the Israelites saw the most amazing miracles, they saw things that we could never understand and explain, things that terrified them to their core. They still didn't change. They still rebelled against their creator and their rescuer. Moses, when he came down with glory, showing that his relationship with God was true, covered his face. So people wouldn't be afraid or uncomfortable. Is this the way we're called to live? Is this the way we're living our lives now? You see, because what I understand in this passage is Paul's giving us three options. Paul is saying, are you trying to pursue Christ with a cover over your face so no one knows you and you barely know anybody? Are you lost? Maybe you have no idea what we're talking about this morning. That's okay. We're so happy you're here. Or are you bold for the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ? Because this hope that he's talking about is laid out for us in the next chapter in verse four, where he says, the hope is that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is the image of God. And that point that he's making is that a light cannot be hidden. You can't hide a light. Think about your actions this week. Would you describe them as very bold? Did you go into your house and did you actually make your family sit down and eat dinner together and talk about their days and be involved? When you said you were gonna pray for somebody, did you actually do it in that moment? Or did you just give them false hope and you forgot as soon as you got in your car? When your coworkers were talking about that one other coworker, did you laugh along? Or... Did you take a stand for Jesus? 
Did you get up? Did you go up the mountain and meet with God? Did you plead for your salvation and for God's guiding grace? Did you pray over your children? Did you lead your family? And that's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are called to be the permanent radiating glory of Jesus Christ on this earth. You are called to be sufficient ministers because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You were transformed in order to testify. You were called to serve the good news to people and simply put it in front of them. You were called to live your life so that every day you put your arms out and you say, Daddy. And if you fall on your face in the process, that's okay. Because God will pick you up. Because with the new covenant, your sins are forgiven. I will remember them no more. And so you see, if you don't live your life this way, if you live your life as a Christian with a veil over your face so no one sees you, and you only remove your veil on Sundays, or you only remove your veil when you're praying to God in your house before you fall asleep, you'll drive yourself crazy. You really will. Or you'll end up so hard-minded that you think that this new covenant doesn't do anything. And so you have to ask yourself today, am I going to stop hiding? Will I be very bold this week in my household for Jesus Christ? Will I do it? And finally, if you're here this morning and maybe you don't know what we're talking about, maybe this has all been a little bit of a mystery. I want to give you some encouragement because Paul gives you encouragement right here too. He says, the only way for this veil to be lifted is only through Jesus Christ. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see, I want to focus on this part right here. He says, when one turns to the Lord. You see, because so often we want certain answers before we turn to the Lord. We want certain insight before we turn to the Lord. I need to know X, Y, Z, God, before, you're, before I'm going to give you me. You got a veil over your face. You're not going to see it. He could put it right in front of you. But you have to turn to Jesus first, and then he will remove the veil. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that God has a design for your life that is perfect and that is holy and that is wonderful. But the problem is that we thought we were sufficient within ourselves, and so we went away from God's design. And every time we go away from God's design, that's called sin, and we're all sick with it. And we are broken in our sin. But God did not leave us in our sin. That's why he sent. That's why we read about Jesus Christ coming to this earth, being fully God, being fully man, taking sin and death on the cross, that punishment. And he wrestled sin and he grabbed death and he went into the grave. And three days later, only Jesus came out. But sin and death stayed in there. And because of that, now, if you turn to Jesus... That's it. That's the only word that's used. Just turn, because it really is that simple. If you turn to Jesus away from your sin, believe in the promises that he gave, that his design is to dwell with you for all eternity, then we can recover from our sinful lifestyle and we can pursue God's design. That's the glory of the new covenant today. 
And he finishes with this. Now the Lord is the spirit and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That word is so unique. It's a word that we're familiar with in America. Freedom. Freedom. Something we have and something we also take for granted, right? How often do we take for granted our freedom in the Lord? Have you taken for granted the fact that God sent his son to save you? Or do you realize, do you want to start realizing today the freedom that you have, that no one else has to come down from this mountain, that we don't have to wait for anybody else to tell us how to move, but because of God's spirit and his word, we can pursue after him in a bold relationship with confidence so that when we look back on our week, we can be proud of what we did. We don't have to just say, thank goodness that week is over again. That is the freedom that we hold. And when you do that, you will be transformed into the image of Jesus. You will be transformed so that your heart, your life, your words, your marriage, your home, everything about it, people will notice. Because you're not hiding. There's no veil over your face. Instead, you're rejoicing in the promises of Jesus Christ. And so my hope, my encouragement to you is live that way this week. It's there. There's nothing else holding us back because Jesus is sufficient for that. My challenge for you this week is that if you're still waiting for something to happen or someone to happen, I hope you see it's already here. It's already here. And you can start pursuing Christ you can start living and transforming from one degree of glory to another because our promise is permanent. There's no end to it. Our promise is permanent. I'll close with this thought. I want you to think about what we saw with Moses and then Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And finally, this is John seeing Jesus one more time on this earth. The same John who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John says, I saw one like a son of man. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet terrified. But he, he laid his hand on me. He said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death. That is why the new covenant has glory, because it is permanent and everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time today, the opportunity to read your word and see that your new covenant is, is amazing. The power that it possesses is, is overwhelming. Lord, I pray that this morning people will be challenged to know you more. I pray that as we sing this last song that we would rejoice and worship and the fact that you've saved us from our sin. We don't have to be sick with it anymore. And Lord, I pray for, for the one who is uncomfortable right now, who's just thinking about walking out those doors, that they wouldn't do it, that they would stop and have a conversation.
they would say something before they leave. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in everything. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.